0: And so every year uh, at the New York Times, they release this segment called uh, A Year in Pictures. I don't know if any of you have looked at it, but they release this segment called A Year in Pictures. It's online. You can scroll through 12 months of events uh, that happened in 2021, this time particularly. And above the pictures this year, they wrote a short recap of the year, and I want to read it to you. It says, the year 2021 opened with the promise of vaccines and the belief that we all would return to normal after the tumultuous year of the pandemic. But the year instead took off with an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and saw a summer of carefree gatherings derailed by a fast-spreading virus. Governments fell, democracies were challenged, climate-related destruction was unleashed, all while the casualties of the pandemic continued to amass. The vaccine saved some lives, but human passions, hopes, and fears did their usual work to create a year that was anything but calm and is ending with the prospect of a new variant upending plans once again. This is the story of 2021 told visually through the eloquent universal language of photography. So that's how they summed up 2021 Uh, before we get to scroll through all the photos that show us what 2021 was like. And it's almost like the beginning. It reminds me of the beginning of like a Star Wars movie, you know? Like that's what I was just thinking of just randomly right now, like how the things scroll across. Like as we're entering 2022, like this is what we're starting with, right? And now the first photo that they have shows confetti falling on an empty Times Square uh, when the clock struck 12 on New Year's Eve last year. The focus of the photos, they range from events that took place on the world stage to events that took place in everyday life. They've got events of all that happened, uh, pictures of all that happened at the Capitol and destruction there, but then they've got a photo of an exhausted mom pulling clothes out of the dryer and just like resting her head because she's so tired, right? This is all part of the year, right? Uh, There were photos of joy and sorrow. There was a newborn baby snuggled in a blanket uh, and then a mass outdoor crematorium for COVID victims in New Delhi, India. Uh, The beauty of nature was paired with the the horror of natural disasters. Uh, There's a lot that happened in 2021, right? It took a long time to go through all these photos. And when I looked through the pictures, I kept saying to myself, that happened this year? Like, it feels like so long ago. I couldn't, I was like, oh, yeah, that happened this year or last year. Uh, And the reason I think why it feels so long ago is that uh, so much has happened and we're so aware of how, uh, like, so quickly aware of everything that's happening, like, as soon as it happens, right? So it feels old really fast. You know, in this day and age, right, we can access news like that. We get alerts on our phones, we read it, we move on, and it starts to feel old really fast so fast that i wonder if many of us have actually taken the time to process what's happened in the past year and I'm, I'm just giving a few examples from the global and national level but what about even our personal lives there's a lot that has happened in our personal lives in 2021 All right so many in our church have celebrated so many that we've encountered have grieved much this year There are new additions to families. There's loss of beloved family members and friends. People have new jobs. People have lost jobs. We've had relationships that have been healed. We've seen reconciliation. But then we've also seen relationships broken and and people kind of separated and torn apart, right? Uh, These are just the big chunks, too, that I'm talking about. There's lots of other little things. And as we enter this new year as a church, we want to just step into the natural rhythm of our culture, and we want to reflect back, right? Not just for the sake of reflecting back and thinking, man, that was a good year, or wow, that was a really hard year, right? Our worldview kind of goes beyond that. We have a a larger scope of, of happenings in the universe than that. We believe in a personal, loving, and sovereign God, right? He's active in every detail of every minute of every year. Right? And we haven't truly processed a year if we haven't processed it with him. Right? We haven't truly processed a year until we've recognized his faithfulness through it all. And there's no better way to begin a new year than to remember our God as we remember our year and we rely on him as we go into 2022 with our resolutions, our hopes, with our desires, even our fears. So we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Nehemiah today, and I found myself encouraged by uh, Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1. It's a prayer that's prayed by somebody who's grieving loss, uh, somebody who lives in a period of uncertainty, a a person who has no control over his own circumstances or the circumstances of the people he loves. Uh, Each day he has no idea what the next day will bring, whether things will get better or whether things will get worse. And he wants so badly to fix it. I looked at this first chapter, and I read his prayer, and I thought, we really need this today. Right? As we enter 2022, we need to pray. That goes without saying. But we also need to relate to somebody who's gone before us, like way before us. Who's gotten on his knees before God and prayed in the book of Nehemiah, it outlines faithfulness, of the faithfulness of God and how it's experienced to its fullest by those who rely on him, right, particularly through prayer. There are nine prayers. This book is 13 chapters, and there are nine prayers in this book. Some are super long. Some are really short. Right? We've got really long ones like praises of God, songs even um, about all he's done, and some are just as short as, Lord, now strengthen my hands, Like, that's the prayer. And the prayer we're going to look at today, it falls between the two. It falls in the middle as far as length, and it's the one that he begins his memoir with. And before we get to that, I want to give some background on Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is a historical book of the Old Testament. That means its purpose is to tell a historical story. So in this book, and especially in this particular section, Nehemiah is providing a memoir of his experience. The events of this book took place in the 3rd century B.C. during a time when Israel was in captivity to the Persian Empire. And to make a long story short, uh, you can go to Deuteronomy 28. And this is right near after the Israelites had escaped from Egypt and God had promised them that if they obeyed him, He would bless them, but if they didn't, he'd scatter them, that they'd be taken into captivity. And the nation did the other thing, right? They didn't obey him. They were taken into captivity. David's son Solomon chased after a lot of other gods. He married a lot of women who worshipped those gods. And as a result of his divided heart, Israel became a divided kingdom. Uh, The northern kingdom kept the name of Israel. The southern kingdom took on the name of Judah, and that's where Jerusalem was. Uh, Both kingdoms were idolatrous. Both kingdoms were eventually taken into captivity. Uh, Judah was taken by the Babylonian Empire. This is just history lesson for you, but it's good for you to know. Uh, And when the Persians defeated the Babylonian Empire, they acquired Judah's land, and they acquired the people and all the spoils. And so here is where Nehemiah is. He's one of those captives, and he works for the king. He's his cupbearer. You know, cupbearer was more than just being a waiter. Uh, it wasn't that he had this kind of cushier job in the empire. Instead of being, like, put to slave labor, he got to be a waiter. He was actually charged with bringing the king his wine, but also drinking it first to make sure that it wasn't poisoned, right? So that's a great job, right? Every day, every day's is a gamble, right? With every meal comes the question, is today going to be the cup that gets me? And so it's in this setting that Nehemiah starts his memoir by telling us about some news that he receives from his brother. Look with me, verse 1 through 3. During the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned. So this is what starts out our story. Right? The wall of Jerusalem has fallen. and Nehemiah is faced with this terrible news in a terrible setting. Right? So even though the nation of Judah was captive, right, there was a remnant in Jerusalem that was actually doing relatively okay living there. But their local enemies, they still existed. They were bent on their destruction. So every time they tried to rebuild, someone would attack and sabotage them. Nehemiah's people are in great trouble and shame, his brother says. Without walls, especially back then, right? Without walls, a city was not a city, right? There's no safety without walls around a city or without somebody guarding those walls. And Jerusalem's walls had been broken down once again. Their gates had been burned. And so, what does Nehemiah do with this news? And we're going to quickly look at his reaction and the prayer that follows, because I think in this we will find a helpful grid for ourselves. See, the events that happened even a millennia ago, right? These events—they uh, may have happened that long ago, but there's still something universal. There's something relatable uh, that comes—that comes from just this prayer and 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 comes from when disaster hits, right? When people experience disaster then or when they experience it now, we're still human. There's something we can draw from this history. Uh, We're all vulnerable to disaster, right? We're reminded of that even today, uh, especially in our time. And so as we explore this grid for prayer found in Nehemiah, we're gonna see four elements that emerge as he communicates with God. We're gonna see how he processes the news he's received. We're gonna look at his posture We're going to look at the promises of God, right? And the way he petitions God to do even more than he's promised. So four things, the process, posture, promise, petition. That's our kind of roadmap for this sermon. And so let's look at how Nehemiah processes this news. How does he process the destruction of his land and the the shame of his people? Verse 4. He says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So how does he process this news? Right? God's word says that as soon as he heard it, he sat down. It says he wept and mourned for days. He continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Have you ever heard news that's just made you... Sit down, right? News so heavy that it made you sit down, or or news where somebody brought you a chair before they told it to you, right? I can remember being in a hospital room uh, with my own mom when we found out that she had cancer, and I knew something bad was coming because the nurse brought in two extra chairs, one for me, one for my sister, right? These are this is the kind of news that he's hearing, the kind of news that brings you to your to your knees, right? He can't stand after hearing this. He weeps. He mourns for days. And it says he continued to fast and pray before the God of heaven. Nehemiah processes this news by grieving with God. But did you know that we can grieve with God? right? Not just in front of God, but we can grieve with God. You know, a lot of the things that grieve us actually grieve God too. Right? Loss of life in any form, that grieves God relational strife, backstabbing, betrayal, cutthroat competition, grieves God like it grieves us. Abuse whether from whether domestic or international, right? grieves God like it grieves us. Destruction of his creation like the fires we're just seeing in Colorado or totalitarian regimes seizing power and subjecting citizens to oppression and domination pandemics and all that come with them, that grieves God, right? We've lost people this year, right, to various things. Addiction grieves God and the consequences of it. And we've lost somebody even in this church uh, this past year, right? He didn't create the world this way. In Genesis 2, it says, when God finished his creation, including humanity, he looked upon it and he called it very good, Right, so we can, we can guess that everything that's not very good falls short of God's original plan for creation. Right, when the world falls short of being very good, wouldn't it be safe to say that God actually outgrieves us? Right, this is his creation. So Nehemiah grieves with God because Israel was the land that God had set apart right, for the people that God had set apart. With his intention to bless them right not why not an intention of destruction an intention of blessing and nehemiah knows that right the god of heaven grieves with you and not just that he listens to you and he and he has the power to act look with me at verse 5 nehemiah says i said lord the god of heavens the great and awe-inspiring god who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servants' prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. So Nehemiah requests that the Lord hear his prayer, but but look at his posture before God. We've talked about how he processes his grief with God, but look at his posture before God as he asks for God's ear. He calls him Lord, right? He calls him God of heaven. He calls him the covenant keeper. And what does he call himself? Servant, God's servant. So Nehemiah approaches God with a posture of humble allegiance. You are God, and I am your servant. Your will is my will. Your command is what I desire. Praying day and night like this, He approaches God with humility, which, when we talk about humility, it's really just seeing God for who He is and seeing ourselves for who we are. Right? God, this loving covenant keeper, the Lord of all, who has His mind on the interests of His people. right? He above all, He's above all, yet He's accessible. And his posture, Nehemiah's posture, is not just that of humble allegiance, but of humble confession, too. Right, look with me at the second part of verse 6. He says, I'm your servant. The people of Israel are your servants. He says he prays day and night, and he says, I confess the sins we, the Israelites, have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. And so Nehemiah approaches God not saying, how could you let this happen? He's not saying, how could you let these walls crumble? Didn't you say you would protect them? Uh, He's not saying, fix this, God, now. He's not saying, God, I'm the answer to this problem, so bless me. He acknowledges the sin of Israel. He acknowledges that it's sin that got them into this situation to begin with. And it's not just that. This is what's really amazing about Nehemiah, and it's it's why people identify him as such a great leader. Uh, he identifies with his people, and he says, even I have sinned. We've all sinned, and I'm confessing on behalf of my family, on behalf of my nation, and on behalf of myself. I have been part of this. I'm with them. Right, This is why he's regarded as a great leader. He identifies with his people, and he takes the rap with them. Right? He doesn't say, forgive those guys over there. I know I can do better. Just send me. Right? Our nation isn't today's Israel. Right, The United States is not today's Israel chosen by God uh, to be this specific nation like the way Israel was set apart. But still, how often are we willing to identify with the sins and the problems of our people? Right? We like to separate ourselves from the things that we think are wrong that are going on in our nation, right, in our families. Uh, we look around and things look dismal, right? We, we complain a lot. We wish things would get better. We see lots of wrong. But is there any chance, is there any chance at all that, that maybe we play some part in the madness of it all? Right? What if we even positioned ourselves before God with this posture of humility and asked him, God of heaven, where have I contributed? But it's not just about what Nehemiah has contributed to the mess. It's also his love for his people. That's what drives him to confess for them. It's not that he's just contributed to the mess of what Israel has done. He actually loves these people. He cares about the well-being of his nation right? Even though they're reaping what they've sowed, right? And when you think about yourself, do you care? Do you care about your nation? Do you care about your family in this way? Do you care about your community in this way as they stand before God, right? He invokes God's promises on their behalf, right? The same God who promised to scatter the unfaithful, he's also promised to gather those who return to him. Look with me at verse 8. He says, Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. And so God's promises are real and they're kept, right? And Nehemiah is praying according to the promises of God. And if you want to know how to get a 100% return rate on your prayer, pray according to the promises of God. God has many gracious promises for his people and for this world, and they might not be answered tomorrow, but every promise will be kept. In Isaiah 55, 10, God says this about his word. He says, for for just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Does that mean that God doesn't answer prayers that don't cite his promises? No, he He answers even beyond his promises because he's loving and he's a gracious father. And uh, he says that he enjoys giving gifts to his children. Jesus says that in Matthew 7, 11. He says, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? But see, he hasn't promised you the car that you want. He hasn't promised you the financial stability that we all would like to have. right? He hasn't promised you a pain-free life here and now. He hasn't promised a cure for your ailments. Yet he's gracious and he does act. But let's be careful as we, as we pray that we don't think that God's word is coming up empty when we don't get what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. right? Let's still ask him, Let's ask him knowing that he grieves the not very good with us, right? And in his wisdom, he's chosen a time to set it all right. And sometimes he does answer those prayers that go beyond his promise. Sometimes he does heal. Sometimes he does provide the car. Sometimes he does provide the house. Sometimes he does provide the finances that you need, right? But Nehemiah, he's asked God to return to the people of Israel, to their land, as they return to him according to his promises but he ends his prayer uh, and he gets more specific with this petition and, and a, a petition is just simply a request right he doesn't just want God to do this in a vacuum he himself wants to be used by God and to harness his position within the Persian uh, government to accomplish this and so look with me as he closes in verse 11 he says please Lord let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. And the verse ends at the time I was the king's cupbearer. So Nehemiah is asking for the king's mercy because he's about to ask uh, he's about to ask him to let him leave his position as cupbearer, which is a really big ask. And to let him lead the charge in rebuilding the walls to his home. Right? To begin the restoration of this city which houses the temple of God. The very place where God lived among the people. And not only that, he's not just going to ask him if he can leave and if he can go and do that. He's going to ask him to send people. He's going to ask him to give money. He's going to ask him to give materials. And you know what he does? The king does. God answers this prayer. And if you go on to read Nehemiah, you'll see that this prayer was the foundation for the repentance of the people of Judah. It was the foundation for the restoration of the walls and the gates that were destroyed. This prayer that Nehemiah prays is the foundation for other prayers that are prayed throughout this book as they meet resistance carrying out this restoration plan. They're rebuilding the walls, and people come after them, right? And he's praying, Lord, strengthen our hands. Uh, This prayer is the foundation for all of that, this moment. Does anybody here feel that kind of resistance in your lives, right? Something or someone that's hindering you as you pursue God's plan for your life, as you pursue obeying him and going after what he desires for you? Does anyone feel resistance to carrying out God's plan of restoration for our own community, right? Making the gospel known to Cape Coders as we try to build thriving communities of neighbors who love God and who love one another, right? Serving our community, even being in community with one another, like during a pandemic, or maybe that resistance is internal for you right it doesn't have to be somebody else or something else it can be internal maybe something within you feels like it's keeping you from from doing what god has called you to do it's just not it's not just people that get in the way either it can be anything from personal issues to a global health crisis right and when we set off to plant this church in September 2019, uh, weight after weight was laid upon our efforts to carry out what we felt like was God's call for us to plant a church on Cape Cod. Obstacle after obstacle. There's personal, interpersonal, health-related, health, health related, financial, national, global. Right. I know I'm not the only one who's experienced these things, but it has been pivot after pivot for the last two years uh, just in planting this church. right? And we're just a sprouting baby church now, right? But what would it look like if we stopped and we processed with God? And if we took a posture of humility before him? What would it look like if we prayed his promises and we petitioned him with earnest desires to accomplish his will, right? Your will be done. What would it look like if Seven Mile Road on Cape Cod did that? If we just were in a habit of doing that over and over. And if you want to be involved even in praying something like that, we get together on Zoom once per month, and we have uh, first every first Wednesday at 8 o'clock, and we pray together. There's a group, whether big or small, like that Zoom link is available, and we are on uh, first Wednesday of every month at 8 p.m. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty. That all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Right? Jesus is the confirmation that God keeps his promises. He hears the prayers of his people. And throughout the Old Testament, there are promises of this coming Messiah, right? We just talked about that during the season of Advent, the servant king who who would lead the great restoration, the greatest restoration project in history, right? The restoration of God's creation. And now where Nehemiah served a king who asked him to drink poison on his behalf, Jesus was the king who drank the cup of poison for us. Jesus is both the cup bearer and the king. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the last drop on the cross. Like Nehemiah, he identified with a sinful people. He didn't just take the rap with us. He was sinless, so he actually took it for us, and he was raised on the third day, just as he promised he would be, and he'll return as God's word said it says, and he'll restore all things to completion. Acts three twenty one. That's when sickness will be healed. That's when every prayer for healing will be answered. Right there will be no more fear of plagues. Tears will be dried, wiped away by God Himself. Burdens will be gone. And death will be no more for those who believe in him. The wickedness that is death, right? That crouching enemy that we're all trying to avoid will be gone. If you're listening and you have yet to believe in him, I just invite you to today to place your trust in him. And he invites you to do that today. Uh, In the same passage that I just mentioned, Acts 3, the Apostle Peter says this, Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's an invitation to times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord.